Radhika Jones, editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. Hello and welcome back to Still Watching Mrs. America. I'm Vanity Fair Senior Writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair Chief Critic Richard Lawson. Each week on Still Watching, we like to break down the latest episode of some show that we are sort of currently obsessing over, watching in a deep dive kind of way. Right now we're watching Mrs. America. We're sort of coming towards the end. We're in the home stretch here, uh, with the episode Bella. So, um, if you have not watched the episode Bella yet, you might want to go ahead and press pause on this and go watch it. Cause we'll be talking all about that. Uh, and of course we'll be hearing from the amazing Margaret Martindale about her, uh, performance as Bella Abzug. So we will have that interview at the back of this episode, but first, uh, Richard and I are going to break it all down. You can, uh, always email us stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. We haven't been getting sort of as many emails for this as we usually do for like our theory shows because I think people are just like learning. They're not like, they're not going to like speculate uh, about what happened in history. Um, but I have heard from a few Though people. Though I am and, curious and sort of- what, I was going to say, I, I am curious um, which uh, feminist people think are hosts. <laughs> um, right? <laughs> it's got to be at least a couple. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, Schlafly, I obviously. Yeah. I got my Jill for sure. Um, all right. So, uh, we, I have heard from a few people sort of more informally, um, a couple sort of fact checky things for what we were talking about. We were talking, um, in the, uh, episode, uh, Phyllis, Fred, Brenda, and Mark, I had said that I wasn't able to find, um, sort of evidence about, uh, Brenda Feig and Fausto's, uh, sexuality. Um, you know, and uh, someone wrote, someone wrote to me, not an email, so I can't find it right now, but they wrote to tell me that they knew someone who had read her autobiography and in her autobiography, she talks about it. So that is a thing, you know, there, there really is like almost nothing in this show that hasn't been meticulously sort of fact-checked or sourced to reality. Um, so that's one thing. And then another, in last week's episode, I talked about how that conversation between Jill and Phyllis at the bar 
that great two-hander scene with Kate Blanchett and Elizabeth Banks was, you know, something that they had made up. And while that's kind of true, I guess Jill Ruckelshaus was um, giving an interview. The real Jill Ruckelshaus, who's still alive, was giving an interview this last week, and she had said something along the lines of, I did try to reach out to Phyllis. You know what I mean? So, like, whether or not this particular meeting happened that effort, that olive branch sort of effort did happen. And some of Phyllis's lines in that uh, conversation are also lifted from other interviews or comments she's made. So, you know, there, uh, anytime I question something, the, the facts are there. So, so we will not, we will not doubt down to, uh, the, the pie quip that opens this episode when Phyllis gets pied, um, at a meeting, I, I I looked up an article about this whole thing, and uh, she did make that quip about the pie not staining her her outfit. Um, what did you what did you make of this of this open with Phyllis and the pie, and and this this pro rather than anti sort of reframing of her of her language that she gives here? Yeah, I mean. It- <laughs> It certainly sets uh, an interesting tone for the rest of the episode, which I, a, a larger episode that I think is really about um, when the, the dynamic of power really shifted. And so to start with Phyllis getting pied in the face and then watch the rest of the episode as her side kind of starts to win um, is an interesting dynamic. And, you know, I, I had seen footage of Anita Bryant, the anti-gay um, activist, um who was pied at some sort of public event, I think in the eighties or possibly late seventies. Um, and I guess I knew that Schlafly had been herself and, you know, look, I'll be able to admit there was a, 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 a base kind of guilty part of me that was like, kind of like, yeah, to, to, you know, when she, when she got the pie <laughs> in her face, but also we see with, you know, the subsequent eye patch and everything that it, it you know, it's a violent assaultive act. And um, it was a man doing it to a woman, which I believe was also the case with Anita Bryant. Um, so that's kind of a charged dynamic, uh, separate of anything else. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's certainly uh, like, I, I like when a show, you know, this many episodes in still packs, you know, kind of dynamic, big surprises like that. Yeah. So I was reading this article, um, in the New Jersey Daily Record, uh, the headline is ERA foe gets nailed with pie because like, I mean, can you imagine, uh, the headlines, uh, around this? That's one, uh, certainly one of them. Um, the guy who pied her, the real guy who pied her, his name is Aaron Kay. Uh, and he gave an interview about it. He's like, yeah, I pied her. Um, and he said he chose, uh, apple pie. Uh, which is not the case in the show, but he chose apple pie because it was in the tradition of motherhood. Um, and, um, and then, yeah. And then Schlafly says, I wouldn't want you to think that the people who oppose my views to this extent are really total slobs because I appreciate that they didn't pick cherry pie that would have stained my dress. And you're just like, my God, I mean, this woman, she is a machine. Um, and so this guy says, uh, so he's part of this. The, yeah, I didn't know about this. You, you knew about Anita Bryant. I didn't know about this, but he's part of this like thing called the pie kill unlimited pie kill agents through pies at anyone for a price. But this guy says he did it for free because he just didn't like Schlafly, um, that much. So there you go. That's the real story of Phyllis Schlafly and the pie. But I, I, I thought this, uh, sequence was really interesting. We get, um, Phyllis Schlafly's daughter. Um, who, who sort of will feature throughout the episode, but they're talking about, you know, watching the King and I versus chorus line. But my favorite part musically of that sequence is when the pie gets thrown, you hear Blitzkrieg pop, um, 
which is, you know, this Ramones, famous Ramones song came out in 1976. So this, we're in April 1977. That song came out in 1976. And I think it's really interesting. You hear that song, you hear Cherry Bomb later. It's really interesting to hear these like counterculture punk songs and remember that that counterculture was coexistent with what we're, you know, with whatever the world of Schlafly uh, that we're seeing on the screen. Do you know yeah. I mean? And I, th- I think to set up the dichotomy that still exists today, which is the, some semblance of the anti-establishment um, message of punk did permeate into regular popular culture in terms of a skepticism about authority. You know, um, we get some movies and TV shows, more TV, I guess, that are very like flag wavy, pro-military. I think of a lot of stuff on CBS, for example. But, you know, by and large, popular art is now kind of understood in, to some extent to be kind of anti authoritarian to sort of anti-authority to some extent maybe country music less so but there even that has its own long tradition of being um used as you know sort of progressively um politically speaking um so so that endured this thing you know later in the episode watching phyllis um listen to cherry bomb and this these you know flashes of concern crossing across her face um which is a great piece of wordless kate blanchett acting um yeah you know, that fight she did lose. And what, what her side won is, is the grabbing of political, you know, power in Washington and, and in states, state governments, um, which is very significant, obviously. Um, but it does kind of set the stage for their win was not total. You know, while they were looking at these particular policy things and, and, and get, getting seats in Washington and getting the ear of a conservative president and installing a conservative president in the White House, there was a culture war that they were losing and that they still crow about losing today. Yeah. Yeah. So we are, you know, we are firmly in the Carter administration. Um, but as you say, like the Reagan administration is right on, on the horizon here. Um, but I did want to talk about this, this important figure that we, that is highlighted in this episode. We're going to get to Bella, obviously, and our token husband of the week and all that, all that sort of stuff. But, um, we get the story of, um, Midge Costanza, who's played by, um, Annie Paris, I think is how you pronounce the actress's name and her partner, Gina Leary. And these are two figures played by Anna Douglas. And these are two figures, um, you know, Midge was, um, I, I have her official uh, title somewhere here, but it's like liaison to the, you know, assistant liaison to the president or something like that. Uh, so she had this really important role in, in the Carter White House. And she used it, even though she was firmly in the closet, she used it, uh, partially to forward the, uh, conversation about gay rights because, um, her romantic partner was Gina O'Leary, who was, um, the co-executive director of the National Gay Task Force. And so Midge Costanza's, uh, story has a lot to do with this, uh, this huge, historical meeting that she engineered in the Carter White House, where she brought the National Gay Task Force um, to the White House in 1977 in March. So like just before, you know, the opening of this episode for this big meeting to talk about um, the way in which gay rights uh, and the gay rights agenda. And I don't mean that in the like sinister way. I just mean it in like this straightforward political way um, could be applied to various levels of government and policy. Um, and so we get, you know, mid year sort of 
helping, you know, Bella launch the project that she's working on, but this other story of Midge, um, and she basically has, was forced to resign from the Carter White House, um, because I think partially because of, you know, her willingness to push some more radical issues and the fact that she was outspoken by the way in which she felt like the Carter administration had sort of let her down, um, in some ways. So like, uh, I'm, I'm curious, Richard, if you were at all aware of this, um, gay history or, or how you felt like it was, it was sort of, um, seeded in through this episode. You know, I, I, I'm actually, I was not aware of the, this particular facet of, um, you know, the gay rights history. Um, I, I think probably, I mean, it's my own failing, but I think that, you know, especially for gay men, we tend to hear about Stonewall and then the seventies were this party and then AIDS came, you know, and then everything after. Um, and I think that, you know, I think that lesbians like, like we see in this episode who are working, um, you know, to, to enshrine gay rights, um, in their way, um, you know, don't get the, uh, the full gaze of history, um, in the way that they should. So I, I was glad to see that in this episode and, and, and to have that not only be, um, you know, an important piece of our infotainment in this episode, but also to, it's really part of a deeper undercurrent of, of pathos that you see in this episode. I think this is probably the saddest episode we've seen. Mm. Um, the, the Ruckles House episode had that as well, but this is really this kind of huffs with this sense of loss. And, and even though there is a little triumph at the end when, when Bella says, you know what, you know, you can't move mountains with fear or whatever she says and decides to put, um, uh, you know, gay rights back into the, to, as, as a plank in, in their platform. Um, you know, uh, I don't know. I, I like the, I like the way that, 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 that plot line served as both, um, educational, uh, and emotional. Yeah. So if you, if you're interested in more, a little bit more about, uh, Gina Leary specifically, um, there's a podcast, makinggayhistory.com, episode 15, uh, is sort of part two of the Gina Leary sort of series that they did. Um, <laughs> the trans, you know, like, Midge was very deeply in the closet, I think, um, through her whole life, maybe, or, or, or at least at any, at any rate, uh, Gina Leary told this story about that meeting and how she and Midge made out in the Roosevelt room, but this guy who interviewed her in 89 was not allowed to tell that story because Midge is in the closet. But anyway, he tells it in the podcast. It's all there. Um, I think that's, I think it's, you know, it's, it's interesting and sad that like Gina Leary tells the story and she's like, I rolled over in bed and told Midge I wanted a meeting in the White House. And then on record, she says, I called Midge and told her I wanted a meeting in the White House. You know what I mean? And so the fact that Mrs. America is allowed to, not allowed to, is, is putting their relationship, is canonizing their relationship, um, in history, um, I think is, is, is really lovely. And just the moments you get, with Midge, Midge more than, than Jean, though she is a, you know, a figure in this episode, but with Midge throughout, like, especially when she's going to like, uh, the state dinner and she has to take like a male, um, date, um, and her, her battles with Bella over the platform and all this sort of stuff. I think it's a really, a really strong thread, uh, in this very strong episode. So. Uh, so let us get to Bella Abzug. So she is off a, uh, a loss. Uh, a lost race for the Senate. Um, and we get our, our husband, token husband of the week, Martin Abzug, played by David Eisner, lovely addition, uh, to the stable of husbands on this show. Um, and I really, I really love 
the way this episode kicks off because Bella Abzug, you know, Margot Martindale, fantastic and everything she does, obviously. But, but Bella, what a meal she makes out of Bella Abzug in general. And so we see so much of Bella's brashness throughout the series. So to see her vulner, her extreme vulnerability at the start of this episode, like she can't, she doesn't even, she can't bring herself to put a hat on. Like, you know, she can't do her hair. She's just like, you know, in, in retreat. Um, I think is a really strong way to, to position this arc. Um, how did, how did that opening land for you, Richard? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it landed much the way you described. And, and I think that throughout this episode, um, you know, I think a lot of the characters in this, on, 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 the, on this side of things, um, in this show are dealing with it some at different paces. Certainly Betty for Dan is. But I like the way that it's articulated in this episode that, that Bella feels that the movement is evolving faster than she's capable of. Um, and she's trying to keep up with it and trying to kind of keep it under reins because that's how she knows, um, to get things done. Um, and yet things keep slipping out of her hands. And, and I, I think that like realizing that a movement like this, you know, has its individual heroes like Abzug, but there is a relay race aspect to it. You know, and I don't think that she's jealously guarding the baton and doesn't want to hand it over. It's just kind of a weary kind of realization that it's time, you know, and then she can do what she can and she's not done fighting, but like, um, you know, certain what was once radical is, is now the norm and, 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 and so it shall ever be, you know, um, and, uh, I don't know. I think that's really articulated well. And, you know, it, it brings to mind, uh, you know, cause I, I like that Martindale obviously can be brash and, and, and fill a room. Um, but also she can, she's really good at quiet stuff. Yeah. Um, it, this kind of reminded me of her in the excellent Alexander Payne short from Paris, the parish attendant uh, anthology series yeah. where it's just her narrating her tr- in, in stilted French, uh, her trip to this lonely, you know, I think mail carriers trip to, um, uh, to Paris. Um, I just think that Martindale is, is, is sneakily very, a, a very versatile actor. And, um, it's, it's really, I'm really glad that they did an episode on her in this. I just got kind of emotional when you brought that short is so powerful. I got emotional just remembering it. Uh, if you guys haven't seen it, please do go check it out. It's, it's just so incredible. Her, like her bad French is so beautiful. It's just, yeah. anyway. Um, I yeah. Think it's on YouTube if people want to. Oh, yes. Find it. Please do. I'm Claire Fallon. And I'm Emma Gray. We're culture writers, podcasters, and hosts of the show Love to See It. Every week, we give an unapologetically feminist dissection of reality dating shows, rom-coms, and other romance narratives. We unpack all the weird messages they send us about love, sex, and dating. And we dive into all the details with special guests like actors, authors, and cultural critics. You can find Love to See It wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Tuesday. Um, Yeah, so, you know, this... National Women's Convention, this task force to create it, um, it, you know, obviously is a real thing that happened. They have from, I, I think, what, it's like April to November or whatever to to create this convention, uh, to elect delegates from every state. And we see, you know, Phyllis and her um, her, her little soldiers uh, calculating how they can get uh, their team basically to win the delegate seats in the various states. Um, did this all make sense to you? This like organization of, of, you know, what, what they were trying to put together here? It gradually made sense. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I, because I, 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 it took a second for me to realize that this was supposed to be a sort of 
a big tent kind of thing where anyone was involved. It was not party affiliation. It was not, you know, um, you know, and I think that's where that language comes in later. Like, we'll just kick them out. And she's like, well, we can't really do that. We have to be uh, a big tent. And I think, you know, that we see that struggle um, on both sides of the aisle these days. But interestingly, more, I think, with the, with certain the few remnant people who are in the Republican Party who are like, not willing to jump into bed, at least overtly, with, uh, you know, far right bigots, you know, um, and are now sort of like trying to kick out those people in whatever limp way they can. Um, and it's not proved effective. I don't really know where this episode comes down on that. Like, I don't know if it's saying they should have just been taken a hard line and not allowed anyone from the Phyllis side of things into this convention. Um, but, uh, I liked, I, I enjoyed them kind of grappling with it. And even though it kind of made me feel a little bit sad and hopeless about political progress, because it can always be hijacked by bad people. I don't know. I kind of think that I think I feel like the episode is most uh, on Gloria's side at the end when she says what's really revolutionary about a room full of people agreeing with each other. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so like Gloria comes around, you know, Gloria has that great line where she was like, this is our Eaton and you let the snakes in uh, like as I wish I could ever drop a sentence like that in a fight with someone. Um, but Gloria says that, but then she like sort of comes around to Bella's point of view and, um, or, or if, if not that, then comes around to a place where she feels comfortable, uh, backing it. And I, I think that's where the episode lands as well, that it's better to have a conversation, uh, than it is to isolate yourself on your side. You know, so we're, I mean, well, I don't mean to skip, get ahead of ourselves, but I was just thinking like the very end of this episode is all these women. Cause you've got like the, the women that we've met in these various episodes, including Phyllis's women, uh, Rosemary Thompson, who's a real figure. And then Pamela and Alice, who are these sort of fictional composite characters, um, all getting sort of their, their packets and their invitation to the convention, which is, I don't think it's a spoiler to say the setting for the next episode. And I was just, I was reminded, please don't, judge me for making this comparison but i was reminded of like like a game of thrones battle episode i'm like all the forces are like marshalling for this big meeting uh in houston in episode eight and so um uh, that's just sort of the vibe i got at the end of the episode um well yeah it also yeah. i mean i it, it makes you appreciate the writing of the show the kind of the 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 macro thinking writing of the show where there has been an arc i mean it's hard to create an arc out of a set period in history because does anything really ever is there a, a one flashpoint where it begins maybe but where does it really end you know things just kind of continue on right um which is always tricky when you're doing a kind of docudrama like this um but to to feel that sense of inexorable meeting you know at this upcoming uh thing in this upcoming episode um it gives the series at the end like a nice kind of propulsive charge um you know and and hopefully i haven't seen those episodes yet but hopefully we'll kind of shoot the audience out at the, on the other end, you know, a little bit more galvanized, you know, because there is some despairing stuff that's really starting to happen now on this show. Um, if, if you tend to side with, um, the, the feminists on this issue, uh, or these many issues. Um, but I can feel a sense of energy building, uh, that might kind of rocket all of us out of the, 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 the coming loss, I guess. I think, I think so. Um, all right. So let's talk about a couple more Bella things before we hop over to, to Phyllis and what's going on with her. Um, there's two big Bella scenes I want to talk about. Um, one is this sort of confrontation that she has with the trio of 
you know, Phyllis Acolytes. Um, she goes to normal Illinois to sort of confront Phyllis. Phyllis is at home. We'll talk about why, um, uh, when we talk about Phyllis, but Phyllis is at home. And first we see Bella get out of the limo and you see all these young women just like screaming their heads off her that she really is like a hero and a rock star to these young women in the movement. And, and the, and the energy that she gets from that, like the smile on her face, um, at that recognition. And then she's just really feeling her oats when she goes to meet these women backstage and gives them this great sort of back and forth where she ends by calling them working girls. I loved this scene. Um, Paulson's great. Uh, Margot Martindale's great. Um, talk, talk to me about, um, what you thought, Richard. Uh, uh, I mean, you know, I think that this show is, is, is largely, um, you know, they're very careful about time, place, facts, but also very careful to note at the beginning of these ep- each episode that some things have been created and certain characters are, you know, composites or inventions or whatever. Um, and, and sometimes that bothers me with this kind of, again, docu historical drama, but any, a scene that can kind of distill, um, the, the frustration of, of an argument, uh, into, to just a couple minutes, I think is really powerful. And I think that this scene is a really good example of that. Um, and I think, I mean, you, I think have seen past where I have, but sets us up for the, ne- the focus of next week's episode. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I don't think, I also don't think it's a spoiler to say that like the next week's episode is called Houston, but Sarah Paulson's character is at the center of it. Um, and I think what we've been seeing, I think, I think this composite character is really interesting because I think we're seeing her, you know, her conflict. Like Rosemary, uh, played by the great Melanie Linsky, is a true zealot for the yeah. the Schlafly cause. And that there is, you know, modulation with the Alice character, that she is constantly having some questions and doubts um, about um, what Phyllis is doing. And the, and the Pamela character too, there's an indication in this episode, just with a glance, that the Pamela character, uh, is, and there's been some hints before that she's being maybe physically abused by her husband. Um, and, and Phyllis is something really cavalier about, well, maybe the husbands wouldn't beat the wives at blah, blah, blah. And, you know, Alice and Pamela share a, a glance. And so this idea that like these two women, are more vulnerable than a Rosemary or more open than a Rosemary would be to some of the arguments from the other side of the aisle, if that makes sense. And, um, and you know, Bella makes a really good case in this um, episode (laughs) with, with a zinger, you know, um, with panache. So um, I really like that scene. And then, but I do think the strong, you know, the, the, the twin strong scene, she goes to see Betty um, and she asks that really like, great question of like oh i forget what it is oh yeah yeah does it bother you that no one calls you a radical anymore right and you you had sort of referred to this this idea that like the cause is moving faster than she can i think that that's it's a it's a cycle that anyone like you know i i'm i'm a liberal i consider myself a progressive but i am in like my 30s now and i see younger people in the movement to the left of me when I used to think that I was as far left as the party went and I see people moving to the left of me and then I start to feel like fusty and centrist, which was never where I thought I was in, in the, uh, in the movement. And I think that that is a byproduct of age or experience. Not everyone, not for everyone, but for some people you like, you 
learn to prize compromise more, but how much are you, are you compromising? How much should you compromise sort of thing? Um, but the, you know, that's paired with this other conversation that Bella has with Gloria about, um, this, you know, trip she took down, um, to appeal the case of William McGee, um, in, uh, a man who was convicted of raping a white woman in Mississippi and, um, and she tells this story of a miscarriage and how scared she was and how she might have this like big reputation. But this, this thing that everyone thinks she was so brave for is actually was really a traumatic, fearful experience for her. And that I fact checked that that is entirely true. She has talked about, you know, the miscarriage and all these other things. Mar- Martindale is so good in this scene and Rose Byrne is a really good scene partner. Um, and this is some of the vulnerability uh, that she's so good at, Richard, that you were talking about. Yeah, and I think, you know, just seeing that there is a, a real toll to this, that there is a sense of sacrifice to it, even though um, they are fighting for a bigger thing. And I think sometimes we can get a bit, like, cynical in terms of saying, oh, boo-hoo, you're complaining about this. Well, you know, X amount of people have it worse. And that's oh, that is true. But, um, you know, to look at the individual humanity of someone like Abzug and to see what she lost, in, you know, personally, um, in her, in her fight for better things for a lot of people, um, just kind of grounds it a bit more, I think. And, um, you know, any, any chance this show has had to, um, just turn the camera a little bit and show us a different side of, of someone we thought we knew well, at least in the lens of history, um, I think it's taken and it's taken it wisely. So the other side of the aisle, um, and we should note really quickly that like Gloria doesn't go to Illinois. She goes to California. And this is just the ongoing facts <laughs> of history that Gloria and Phyllis aren't really on uh, a collision course. That it's, it's not, you know, these are the two sort of biggest names on either side. And it's not really about their confrontations. It's about these other women and Phyllis. And I just think that that's, that's interesting. Um, so, you know, uh, Gloria goes to California instead of going to Illinois. Um, but so Phyllis is grappling with um, the onset of menopause, which is interesting um, in and of itself. Some conflict with her daughter who's at Princeton and does not want to be called Phil or Phyllis Schlafly. She has adopted another name. And also this conflict, one of the most interesting conflicts, I think, of the series, which is between Phyllis and um, this character of Eleanor Schlafly, played by uh, the great Jean, Tri- Jean Triplehorn, who is sort of like the mother, like, <laughs> if, if Phyllis is like a working, a working uh, woman, uh, like her wife at home, the person who cares for her children are both like her literal servants and, you know, this, this aunt character. And she refuses to give this woman any credit, I think, for the role she plays in the family. Phyllis couldn't do what she does if Eleanor wasn't there to do the traditional mothering role. Um, is that, yeah, was that I your think, interpretation of it? Yeah, go ahead. I was, and I think she got frustrated then that her sister said we about Thanksgiving. And she's like, well, this is my, I mean, she didn't say this outright, but she was essentially saying this is my household. And don't presume, you know, well, because I think deep down, yeah, because right? Phyllis knows deep down that what you just said is exactly true. 
Um, and I think this goes back to the scene when Bella confronts, you know, three of Phyllis's lieutenants, you know, one, at least one of whom seems to be kind of going rogue in, in Melanie Linsky's character. Um, in, in that, like, when, when, when Bella says she's a con woman, she's this, you no, know, she's saying some really negative things about not her beliefs, but her character. Um, you see that then kind of fleshed out, uh, in these, in Phyllis scenes like that, you know, where I think the show is finally getting to a point where we know enough about her that it is, I think, offering some kind of, I don't know, qualitative assessment of, of her as a person. Um, which I guess was maybe always inevitable or not. I mean, it's not been, it's not been haranguing against her, obviously, but, um, I think showing that, that kind of darker, more pe- pettier, more vindictive side of her, um, from which I think a lot of this belief is born, uh, is, is crucial to understanding the person, I think. Yeah. I mean, I asked Kate Blanchett about that, you know, in our first episode, and we'll have an opportunity to speak to her again, uh, you know, after audiences have seen more of the Eleanor interaction. But I think that the Phyllis and Eleanor relationship, I think Eleanor is her sister-in-law, but I think that relationship is foundational for the villainy of Phyllis Schlafly in this series. The personal cruelty she shows this woman who does nothing but support her and her family, um, I think stands in for the larger uh, wound that she inflicts on women across the country, you know? Yeah. And uh, to exploit yeah. her loneliness and to exploit yeah. her, her need, um, but then to be repulsed by it at the same time, um, really speaks to the contradiction inherent in her, uh, in Phyllis, um, which is the things the kind of woman in a way, the ideal woman she's advocating for is one I think she would find repellent if she were to meet her in person. Right. Um, if she was really honest with herself. Yeah. And I, I do love the framing of this family conflict, the multi-directional family conflict, because you've got um, Liza, Phyllis's daughter. Uh, you've got Eleanor on the other side of the camera. And then you've got the whole family around posing, you know, the picture perfect family in their holiday sweaters, um, even though Phyllis is like roasting from a hot flash and the tensions just that everyone's feeling and like, you know, John is there. We know that the tensions exist for John. Um, He's looking particularly gay in that, in that Christmas sweater, I have to say. <laughs> and, uh, I'm allowed to and then say you've that. got, an- <laughs> then you've got another son who's like, by the way, I'm going to Berkeley, a perfect yeah. button on that scene. Um, you know, and I just think that that's a great contrast of like the picture perfect. Waltons that Phyllis Schlafly wants to be versus the reality of, of the cracks in her family. Well, yeah. I mean, just as Bella in this episode is realizing that there isn't, there is going to be an inherent generational divide on her side of things. Phyllis is really realizing there's going to be one in her own family, which represents her side of things in, in, in at least her rhetoric. Um, and so this, you know, a gay son, an errant son who's going to go to like the, the hot belly of, you know, the land of fruits and nuts in Berkeley. Um, and then her daughter who has changed her name, who doesn't like being, you know, noticed on, on the Princeton campus for being related to, to the, you know, the, the, the anti-feminist, which, um, you know, I, I think that I think I like that the, the way that this episode sets up those kind of parallels between Bella and Phyllis, both feeling like they're losing their grip, not only on their stature, um, but a bit on history. Bella politically and Phyllis culturally. Um, and wherever, you know, those two things meet in the middle. 
Um, but I will say that it was funny. I was watching this episode and, um, the actress who plays, uh, Phyllis Jr. or slash Liza, um, I, uh, I was like, what, do, what do I know her from? She must have been in some indie at Sundance. And I was just racking my brain because I couldn't find her, her, her name on an IMDb. And then you finally sent me over. Thank you. Uh, a, a, a kind of rundown of all the actors who are in this episode. And I know where I know her from. Degrassi. What? It's always Degrassi. Oh. <laughs> It all goes back to Degrassi. She played Maya, uh, who had a who had an accident and then became kind of like obsessed with death. It was very dark. <laughs> um, so the last thing I want to mention uh, before we we go over to our interview with Margaret Martindale is is we are seeing Phyllis. That you know we're we're two episodes from the end, and we're seeing her really really embrace some truly nasty things uh, in order to get her way. We first in the shape of these horrible tapes, which were yes, real things that happened uh, where they basically like, you know, you want to talk about like, I, I did not think it went back this far, but we, we, we talk about like deep fakes or like manipulated media now uh, and how it's hard to trust what you see, even with your eyes, because things can be edited and stuff like that. But like Phyllis is making these like clumsy mixtapes of speeches um, from these sort of delegate election uh, rallies and handing them around these horribles tapes um, and and the horrible, it's what it was called, but it's so funny because, um, you know, it, it, you can't help but think of like Hillary Clinton and the deplorables when you think of them uh, saying the horribles, but um, this is a thing. These mixtapes were a thing. Uh, and you know, I don't, I don't think there can be any, you know, Phyllis is not winning on her ideas. And so she's resorting to dirtier and dirtier things. And of course the dirtiest thing beyond these tapes is this final conversation she has with Lottie Beth, um, about this idea of sort of, I guess, looking the other way when it comes to the support from the clan. Uh, in their movement. It was that your interpretation of that, uh, final conversation? Oh, yeah. They're using very guarded, careful language to talk mm-hmm. around something, um, while tacitly communicating to each other, uh, perhaps Phyllis more tacitly than Lori Beth, but like, um, uh, that like, yeah, I mean, if we need those people, we need those people, you know, and I think this is where you kind of start to see, um, the ring turned Phyllis into Gollum, you know, <laughs> right. like she's, she's, yeah. she's going down a dark path. And I think that Alice, um, the Sarah Paulson character, you know, watching that and, 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 and lo- seeing Phyllis look a little frayed and, and she's putting these tapes together and, and, and realize like, I, I don't know. I, I would hope that her, that the character's realization is not, Oh, some people, who are fighting for what I'm fighting for uh, are going to use underhanded tactics to get there and, 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 and ally themselves with bad people. And I hope it's less that and more like, Oh, that was there all along. This has been a bedrock mm-hmm. part of this from the get go, you know? Right. Um, because I think that's something that uh, people on the right have had to confront in recent years. You know, it, you know, racists didn't just show up when Trump showed up, they'd been there, maybe a little more dormant, less vocal, um, but racism and, and sexism and homophobia and ableism and any, you know, any other xenophobia was all baked into the thing really essentially in the most modern context, starting right now when this show is, is taking place. Um, so I think it's a really interesting investigation into like what forces have been guiding this the whole time. Um, and important for that era of the show and important for ours. 
Excellent. So let us go to our conversation with the great Margaret Martindale to talk about hats and also, um, like how, how working on the show sort of led to Martindale's own awakening around issues of, um, feminist ideology. So here we go. I, I absolutely love this woman, Bella Abzug. I recognize her. I know a bunch of, uh, women from the East Coast just like her. Um, what, what was it like for you getting to know, uh, Bella? She was just such an incredible, incredible force. And, you know, way ahead of her time on so many things, on, on the environment, on, uh, the, you know, uh, uh, anti-war, on gay rights, on, of course, her 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 passion is getting the ERA ratified. Um, uh, it was an enormous responsibility and a great honor to get to know her and certainly to get to play her. There's um, the inciting sort of incident of this episode that we're discussing um, is uh, her failed bid for the U.S. Senate. And I'm wondering if you could talk about your understanding of the way in which that impacted her as an activist. The toll it took on her was that she she couldn't get, she couldn't fight for everything and get one thing done. Uh, it was a, a real, a real heartbreak to her to have to take things off the table that she had great passion for uh, to, to say first, let's get the, let's get the ERA ratified. Um, I think it, it sort of broke her heart. It, it feels like a real journey in this episode through her fear around not appealing enough to the middle and then almost like a recommitment to her principles and her ideals. Is that your understanding of, of her journey in this episode? Absolutely what happened. I mean, I love that scene between, uh, between um, Betty and her when she, she says that, um, does it make you sad that nobody calls us radicals yeah. anymore? Or, you know, but he said, no, we're more gone. We've gone to the middle. Middle, that's a good thing. And, uh, <laughs> and I think, um, I think it really made Bella sad that they they weren't on fire like they used to be. It's it's interesting also that scene I think is really uh fascinating between Bella and Betty because you've got these um women of the movement who have been in it longer than some of the other figures uh that are around them and so this idea of uh you know as as you stay the longer you stay at the party um you know the the less you are the 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 loudest firecracker at the party you know what i mean and bella has always been a firecracker in her life and um and i i you know i was just wondering like <laughs> that's just it's just something that i've experienced i feel like i I, I, you know, I've always been a liberal my whole life, and I remember feeling like I was the leftiest left. And now, you know, decades later, I'm like, oh, am I, am I the middle now? Is that, is that what's happened around me? So, and to watch and to look back on it, which I find fascinating, is to see that the the fire that was in in those women at that time is greater than what I see now. 
it felt less afraid. Well, you know, I was going to ask you, so you were, you were in your twenties during this decade, during, during the women's movement. How did, you know, Absolutely, what was, what was yeah. your personal connection or involvement um, to the movement? So it was very interesting because I was talking to my best friend yesterday. I met her at Harvard. We met a, in a theater there and uh, we moved to New York together. She was a dancer. Uh, there's a big, huge, famous dance studio in New York called Step Studio. She founded Step Studio. She started Step Studio. She, we were talking about, I said, Do you, what, you know, why is it that we weren't involved in the women's movement mm. during that time? I, I was thinking, because I started wondering what, and I had said to someone, the reason I wasn't, and she said exactly the same words to me, is that all I cared about was dance and all I cared about were boys. <laughs> and I said, and all I cared about was theater and all I cared about were boys. <laughs> so uh, it was, uh, it was, uh, but we never felt that we weren't feminists. We never felt that we weren't liberated. Mm-hmm. It didn't even, uh, it was as if we were born that way. She said, I was one of the first women uh, to do something like start a dance studio, a woman who started a dance studio. And her grandmother gave her the money to start the studio. So it was an all-female sort of thing, you know, and also we were, we really had to survive and try to be artists at the same yeah. time. So it was, um, I guess that was our thrust. I, I wish I'd been on fire. I, I mean, I wish I had. I wish I'd been out with signs and stuff. I, I, I wasn't, though. I wasn't that person. Is that is that a per? I yeah. thought I <laughs> thought everything was great. I was so for it, but I it wasn't. I wasn't that person. Is there a time in your life where you became that person? Are you? Would you consider yourself sort of a a, a, a political person now? Honestly, like I'm so emotional now. It's ridiculous. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, no, no. I mean, it's true. I mean, I'm just. It's just in hell, you know. Yeah. I became that way during this show. Oh wow. I learned so much and 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 wanted to learn more and and grabbed onto all that history that as a young girl in East Texas I cared about being a cheerleader. Kind of a I wasn't airheaded on any level. I was the head of you know, I was almost the top of my class in math and biology and all of that stuff. And everybody wants, you know, nobody tried to get in the girls' ways in Texas. <laughs> uh, uh, but I, uh, you know, I was trying to, I, I wanted, I got, I got a scholarship to go act. Mm-hmm. And that's really what I had a passion for. But this has been a real gift to me at 68 years old, a real gift. Can you talk a little bit more at what point, you know, was it reading scripts? Was it doing research? At what point did you did you find that that transformation happening inside of you uh, in the process of making the show? Well, I can tell you, yeah. finding out who Bella was, and I knew all about Bella. I mean, I didn't know all about her, clearly. I lived on the Upper West Side in 1974. Mm-hmm. So she was around. She was in the papers. She was on the front page. She was on the news, you know what I mean? Uh, and I, you know, I, I didn't, I, I, sometimes I thought, she's so loud, <laughs> you know. But when I read her book, the one she wrote, I read another book. 
I read every article I could find. I read what other people said about her. I watched all of her interviews that I could find. Uh, and um, it was incredible the things she did. And that she had, she, she husband, and she said, I want to get an American Express card. And I could you give, get me one? Because I can't get one for me. He said, well, if you want an American Express card, get it for yourself. <laughs> and she fought and she got it. She got an American Express card in her name. Now, that says something. No, it's amazing. Um, that, you know, you know, that we have to think about that as even being a fight in the first place. Do you know? Well, it was a fight. It was a fight. Something that I find so fascinating that the, that the show does... Um, is bring some of these sort of um, high-level political concepts or ideas down to the personal level. And I'm, th- I'm thinking specifically of the way in which these women fight and sometimes betray each other and let each other down and how personal um, those betrayals feel. And I, th- I feel it in this episode most keenly between the character of Midge and Bella. And I was wondering if you could talk about yeah. those those sort of personal conflicts and betrayals uh, that happen on the show. Well, I think in, in, in what happened between Midge and she is that she is that she, she couldn't put everything on the table because Bella was a politician. She was the politician of the group, along with Jill's Ruckles, Jill Ruckles' house. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was saying, it, 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 we can't put it all out there if we put it like Betty even said. You can't, you can't put it all, everything out there if you want to get one thing done. And I think that she, ha- I think it kind of, it sort of went against the Democratic feeling that, you know, everybody's voice needs to be heard. Well, everybody's voice is heard, but we have to do this one thing at a time or we're not going to get anything done. And I think that was the hardest thing she did. I think it was the most, uh, uh, the smartest thing she did, even though it broke hearts and it broke her heart. But she played the political game. There's a moment in the episode where, you know, she, she arrives at a rally and there's, she, you know, crowds, throngs of, of young women, all kinds of women, but, but, you know, particularly young women sort of uh, treating her like she's a rock star as she gets out of the car. And, and you do something with your performance there where I, you know, uh, Bella smiles and laughs throughout the show. Like the every time she laughs, it's kind of a joy, but there's this c- different kind of smile on your face, on her face, um, at seeing those crowds. What did what did you think that recognition meant to Bella, or, or specifically in that moment? Well, I know that what I asked them to do uh, was uh, when we went into ADR. I remember uh, them wanting me to have a little sound in the car, a little. <laughs> a, la- a little, little laugh underneath my smile. And I said, the whole point I wanted to make in that driving up was that it was quiet. And I was taking it all in. Mm. It was like saying, I'm going to get out and I'm going to do this. And I'm going to be who they want me to be. 
and take a breath and do it. I, I think that's what you're talking about, that scene. I have I have a sort of silly question, but I did ask Rose Byrne about the Gloria Steinem wig. So I have to ask you, of course, about the hats. Bella Abzug is famous for her hats, and you get to wear this whole, you know, avalanche of incredible hats. Did you get any hand in picking what you got to wear? What was What was the whole hat process like for you? Oh, sometimes I did, and sometimes I didn't. The, the, the designer's pretty brilliant, but the, I did. I did sometimes spider on small brimmed hats. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm I just, felt yeah. that Bella looked. I thought I looked more like Bella with a big brimmed hat. Uh, so, but you know, you can't have always big brimmed hats. But just and Gina <laughs> gave us this magnificent array of fantastic hats. So I had to just say, okay, this is not my area. I I need to <laughs> hand it over to this incredibly talented woman and do what she asks. But it was fun to wear hats. It's fun to it was fun to wear that. And some of the costumes I absolutely love, and some of them just I just I just I just did, did me no <laughs> did did not do a lot for my body. <laughs> Oh, the 70s, it giveth and taketh away. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Thank goodness I didn't look like this in the 70s. And there's there's also this really fascinating element of this episode where you have Schlafly and her followers making these these mixtapes, these horribles tapes, right, where they've edited... um, you know, audio to, to, to suit their narrative and their needs, which I, you know, I, I researched after, I could not believe that this is a real thing. This idea of like fake news, uh, you know, the real definition of fake news in, in the seventies. Um, were you aware that this existed? Were you as surprised as I was to find out about this? Absolutely. And, and then you go, wow, I guess that's happening all the time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that was a little scary. A little scary. Um, and my, you know, my last question for you is: there's this really beautiful um, scene between you and Rose, uh, Gloria, and Bella, uh, where Bella talks about uh, going down to Mississippi and, and a miscarriage she had. Um, and it's it's interesting, you know, you've um, something that you've always done as a performer that I really admired is play women with an incredible amount of ferocity and then can on a dime bring that vulnerability through. And I think that's something that's so valuable to see here in Bella is like, you know, she's battling Bella. She's so tough. And then we see that just like every woman on the show, she contains these multitudes. You talk about that scene and, and what it was like to, to work on that part of Bella's life. Well, you know, I thought that was a uh, I, that was an incredible thing to learn about Bella that she had done that, mm-hmm. and she had done that as, as as such a young as such a young woman, and that she was uh, and she was brave enough and uh, passionate enough, and went to Mississippi and and uh, fought for Willie, right? His name Willie. Yeah. Willie McGee. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and um, and and then was so scared by what by what was going on. You know, she was in the middle of something that she had 
heard about but didn't know about. You know, people, you know, execute her along with him. Uh, and uh, she, you know, she was scared for her life. And I thought that was incredible. And the, the fact that she she failed. Yeah. She left. And how much heart heartache that must have caused her, along with losing a baby. Uh, yeah, I, I love that scene. I love that. I love hearing about that story. I love telling that story. And I love, I love the relationship between uh, Gloria and uh, Bella. Um, Rose is just a wonderful person. I just love her so much. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you you um, you you have this amazing career, but I imagine that it's um, you know the opportunity to work with so many women, both in front of and behind the camera, is is not one you get all the time, or uh, you know anyone gets all the time. What what was it like to be constantly surrounded by women working on this project? Incredibly powerful and fun and secure and, uh, you know, going out with giant groups of women, <laughs> you know, to restaurants and bars. And, uh, it was like, uh, we, we all stuck together. We did things together and, uh, maybe a little more, you know, the, the lefty went with the, the left and the righties went with the right, <laughs> uh, it, but not really. We did cross over most of the time. We crossed over. It was just that the times we were working were different times. Right, right, right. So, uh, anyway, yeah, it was just a, a, a real, it, it, as, it was one of the more special things that I've ever been involved in. All, the whole thing about it, the way we did it, the fact that we were in Toronto, that we're all away from our homes, uh, the, uh, the Canadian crews were phenomenal. It was a, it was a real true honor and joy. And, you know, it sounds like you went through a personal, a very personal and, and sort of political journey working on the show. What, you know, what is your fondest hope for um, women or men watching the show um, that they'll, that they'll experience or learn uh, from, from the show? And, I hope they learn what was started then needs to carry on. And uh, those women fought for a lot and went, went, stepped out of their lives and took chances. And it's time to do that again. Uh, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree and more. And I'll be out there this time. I can be, I'll be out there this time. Right, that does it for this week. Next week, we will be convening in Houston for episode eight. We will be speaking with uh, the great Sarah Paulson and also the lovely Nisi Nash um, for episode eight, the penultimate episode. Richard, until then, uh, where can folks find you? Well, people have been saying that during quarantine, you know, to occupy yourself rather than, you know, obsessively play video games or drink too much or eat too much, you should take up a hobby, a craft. So I am going to teach myself to knit a sweater so I can make a new Christmas sweater for John. Uh, and when I'm not doing that, I will be tweeting for bylaws and writing at vf.com. Where will you be, Joanna, until we head to Houston? 
obviously throwing coleslaw at my assistant. Just um, a little coleslaw. Just a little slaw. The slaw that broke the camel's back. Um, uh, but also you can find me on vanityfair.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This, and we will see you in Houston next week. <laughs>